Well, if you would, you may turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 30 this morning. I think I'm preaching this Sunday and the next two. Uh, and the session will make decisions about what follows on that. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a continuation in Philippians, but I won't speak for them. Um, but this morning we're in 1 Samuel chapter 30, turning to one of David's more uh, significant but lesser-known episodes in his life. And I want to begin by saying uh, none of us were planning for me to be here uh, this Sunday. Last Saturday, a week ago, I, I heard the news from a friend at Presbytery about the decision regarding uh, Tim Kirk, and I tuned into your service last Sunday at 10.30 just to see how that was going to be announced, watch the live stream before we left for church at 10.45. And my heart just broke for you, and I sent a text to one of your elders before I walked into the service we were attending and just said, if you don't have someone scheduled to preach next week, let me know. And got back to me quickly and, and said that would be uh, needed and appreciated. And I knew then that we'd be going to this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 30, a passage I've studied and taught on. And I think I mentioned it in a sermon in the Psalms back on the spring, but I've never preached a whole sermon on it. But the Lord laid it on my heart, and I trust it's for your good this morning. Um, we know the stories of David and Goliath, of David's fall with Bathsheba, of um, David's victories and winning uh, Jerusalem, which became known then as the city of David. But we might not know this chapter, significant though it is. So follow along with me this morning in the first part of chapter 30, verses 1 to 6 of 1 Samuel. Now... When David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because of all, because of all, the, people, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Gracious God and Father in heaven, we ask now that you would send your spirit to cast light into our hearts that we might understand your holy word and have it applied to our lives this morning in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. And just when you thought things couldn't get worse. We've all heard stories with that line. Most of us have probably told stories with that line. Some of you may feel right now like you're living in a story with that headline. What do you do when you were sure you had hit rock bottom, only to find that over in the corner... There was a deep, dark pit, and you just got shoved into it. That's where David finds himself as he returns to Ziklag. Now, he never had imagined that he'd be living in Ziklag in the first place, living in exile in, in enemy territory. 
But that's where he is along with his wife and children and his 600 fiercely loyal, mighty men, his support system. He'd been in exile since uh, the current king of Israel, Saul, had pursued him and made another attempt on David's life. So he'd finally crossed the border into enemy territory among the lords and princes of Philistia. And he came to one of the princes of Philistia, a man named Achish, and he sought refuge. Now, Achish has some sympathy on David, probably also sees, sees the strategic value of putting David in his debt. And he offers them the town of Ziklag. It's a military town, most likely. And David and his men and their wives have been living there now, we, we learn from chapter 27, for a year and four months. A year and four months. That's almost exactly how long it's been for us since COVID started the first shutdowns in spring of 2020. And what a long 16, 17 months that has been for us. And it had been a long year and four months for David. And things took a turn for the worse when the, the Philistines decided to assemble all their local men under their local lords into one grand army and, and set out on another campaign, military campaign, against Israel. And Achish calls in his debt to David. We read about this in the first few verses of chapter 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel, and Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are going to go out with me in the army. So David finds himself here in a massive predicament. If he refuses, he may lose the protections that Achish affords him. And then where will he and his men and their wives and their children go? But if he agrees to go, will he find himself in battle against his own brothers in the blood, against Israel? So David and his 600 mighty men, we read in chapter 29, they, they leave Ziklag and they follow the call. They head north about 60 miles to the town of Aphek, where the Philistine lords and, and princes are assembling all of their men into one, one great army. And you can imagine almost like a stage with the different princes on it and their, their groups of men, their regiments are filing through one at a time and the princes are nodding. Yes, that group passes. Yes, that group passes. And one of the last to go then were David and his 600 mighty men. And we see that the Lord intervenes so that we never have to find out whether David would have shed the blood of Israel. In chapter 29, uh, the, the Phil Philistine lords, when they're reviewing David and his men, they reject David and his men. They said, Achish, you can, you can tell us all you want about how loyal he is and how good he is and how we can trust him, but we don't trust him. We don't trust that he won't turn on us in the battle, so we reject him from joining this army. David catches, uh, it's a massive break he catches. The Lord intervenes to prevent him from having to make a really bad decision. How often he does that in our lives. How often he does that for our good. And so it's a good moment for him and for his men in what has been a long year and four months. And sometimes when things get worse, it's made so much harder when it comes on the heels of a good moment. 
when you thought you'd just caught a break, when you thought you'd just seen a ray of hope, when you thought you'd just gotten a reprieve, and all of a sudden you find out, nope, the worst is yet to come. David and his men make the 60-mile journey back to Ziklag. Perhaps they're double-timing it with some pep in their step, like horses back to the barn. They're, re they're released from serving with the Philistine army, but they still have the protections of Achish. They're still going to be able to rejoin their wives and children and stay with them. When they see in the distance smoke faintly rising, uh, that kind of smoke that's from the ashes, and, and as they, they round the last corner or top the last hill, their worst fears are confirmed. Ziklag has been burned to the ground, and their women and children and all their people are nowhere in sight. They had begun that morning, probably on the second day of their journey, the third day of their journey home, exhausted but hopeful, and now they're just racked between alarm and despair by what they encounter. We read, quote, David and his men who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. They, they let it all out until they had no strength to let any more out. And just when David thought things couldn't get worse, he learns that his men have let their bitterness turn into blaming. And they're talking of stoning him. This is a new all-time low in David's life up to this point. I can assure you of that. His very support system has become his most immediate and greatest threat. And humanly speaking, there is nothing available to him. Earlier this week, I, I finished reading a, a book on Fort Loudoun, which is uh, the site of Fort Loudoun. It's a, it's a French Indian war era, 17, late 1750s, early 1760s era fort, just on the other side of these mountains, I, th I hope I'm pointing in the right direction, toward Tennessee. It's on what is the Tennessee River and on a stretch of it that's been flooded since called Teleco Lake. And Fort Loudoun became a center of national attention in 1760. Uh, the fort had been built by the English colonists, you know, based in Charleston, coming up through here. In fact, they were an extension of Fort Prince George, which is just a few miles north of here at the bottom of Lake Kiwi, the site where Fort Prince George was. So the next fort beyond Fort Prince George is Fort Loudoun, and this Fort Loudoun had been built to, to strengthen an alliance between the English colonists and the tribes of the Cherokee Indians. And it was a way of offering mutual protection to each other in their war against the French. Through a, a series of complicated and, and egregious errors and mistakes, miscalculations, many of which took place at Fort Prince George when they took captive and then eventually slaughtered about 20 of the Cherokee leaders, the Cherokee, rightly offended, turned on the English colonists and news of their a turn on the English colonists makes it through the Cherokee nations quickly over the mountains and into Tennessee. And the civilians living in and around Fort George, the English, find themselves suddenly surrounded by the Cherokee in a siege before they even know why. All they know is that these tribes with whom they've had cordial relationships and an alliance, all of a sudden they have cut them off from all outside communication and outside supply. And it's days before they find out that this is in response to what's happened over in South Carolina. 
And in the next four months, it's just a slow starve. 300 uh, nearby settlers have come into the fort, plus the garrison there. They finally get to the point of slaughtering the horses, and after that, they have to surrender. And the surrender ends up going sideways as they're exiting, making their way to South Carolina. Through various mistakes they had made, the Indians turn on them, and it's a massacre. And Captain Demeray, who'd been leading the English fort, the garrison there at Fort Loudoun, is scalped and then dismembered. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a, a joyful read. Because you feel the tension of these months and months and months of no help. A helpless, hopeless situation. David's story could have ended in a, in a similar tragedy kind of right here. If it weren't for the way that it turned on these nine words at the end of our passage. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What David does is utterly counterintuitive. But it's the key that opens the door to everything else that's going to happen in his life and in this chapter and in the rest of the biblical story. It's counterintuitive because when we feel suddenly threatened our instinct is to reach for strength from below. By, by strength from below, I mean you, you find out that you or someone you dearly love has a cancer diagnosis. And so your first instinct is to stay up all that night, gaining all of the information you can gain about this kind of cancer and the various treatments, and maybe doing that for days and weeks on end. Or to seek a new perspective, to reach out to someone else who's had been in a similar business situation or family trouble who can offer some wisdom on this. Or the strength that comes from gaining new allies, finding two or three people who, if they join your side, you'll, you might have a chance in this, this conflict. Or the strength that comes from escape, <laughs> simply spending hours daydreaming about or Googling about your next vacation, or maybe beginning to dream about your next relocation. Or the strength that comes from self-talk. You try telling yourself that you're stronger than you think you are. David doesn't seek any of that strength from below because none of it is available to him right now. I suppose he could have tried the self-talk. But that's not what he does. And the reason none of that strength from below is available to him right now is because God has sovereignly brought him to this point for the purpose of providing David strength from above. Let's take our remaining time this morning to look at the qualities of strength from above and then consider the ways that we receive it. And I have three of each. Three of the qualities of this strength from above and then three of the postures or ways that we can access and receive it. The first quality of this strength is that it is divine strength. David strengthens himself in the Lord his God. It is a divine strength. Our C.S. Lewis fellows this last month have been reading A.W. Tozer's book on the knowledge of the holy and studying the attributes of God. If you've ever studied the attributes of God, you know that attribute means a, a characteristic or a quality of God, not some part of God, but, but a, a way of describing something that's true in all of God. And there's two kinds of attributes of God, what we call communicable attributes, those attributes that he can share with us, that we can partake in, 
and incommunicable attributes, those attributes that belong exclusively to him and they're never ours to possess. His incommunicable attributes include things like his infinitude. No matter how close you get to him or pious you are, you will not begin becoming an infinite person. His eternality, he's the ancient of days, he has no beginning, we always will have had a beginning. His omnipresence, he's not confined to any one geographic location, he is everywhere. Those are his incommunicable, incommunicable attributes, but there are these other things that God and his kindness can share with us, and he does. And these include things like his knowledge, his truthfulness, his wisdom, his, his mercy, his goodness, his righteousness, his love, and his power. He can strengthen us not just by giving us information on how to go find strength from below, but by imparting to us His power, His strength as a gift. Last Sunday morning in Sunday school, Tim referenced 2 Corinthians 12, where Jesus says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In Ephesians 3, Paul prays to the Father for the Ephesians that according to the riches of his glory, he would grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your innermost being. In 2, Corinthians, Paul, 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy about a, a standing before one of, the, one of the authorities recently. And he says, No one came to my defense and stood with me, but the Lord strengthened me. In Psalm 28, David says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. So David isn't just saying, When I think on the Lord, I'm reminded of things that make me strong. No, no he's saying that he actually receives strength from the Lord. This communicable attribute of God's power graciously given to him. It's divine strength. And in our wiser moments, we would prefer it to human strength. It would be the thing that we'd want to seek first. But we need to be reminded time and again, against in a counterintuitive way, that no, there's a divine strength available to us. Secondly, it's a holy strength. It's the strength we receive because of the blood of Jesus Christ that gives us access to a holy God and to his holy heart. We oftentimes find ourselves in a foxhole or hear stories of people who are in a foxhole and we're tempted to pray foxhole prayers. Lord, if you get me out of this situation, what do we always put next? I promise I will. I'll become a monk, said Luther when he got into a thunderstorm. I'll become a missionary. I'll quit smoking. I'll quit drinking. I'll, I'll stop this sin that you know I'm doing. I'll treat so-and-so better. In that moment, we, we believe that our pledge to do some good thing will incline God to be gracious to us and to provide us what we need. This is universal. And I, I think it's true that Christians are the only people in the world who don't believe that that's how God works. We believe that nothing we have done or could do or could pledge to do would ever impress God and be something that inclines him to open the door from his side to us and let us in. And that begins with our understanding that God is simply too holy for that. 
and all of our actions and intentions are tainted with our own self-interest in the very least, and sin, and he's too wise, and he sees through that. He's neither fooled nor impressed. So we believe that God gives us access to himself and to his heart exclusively through the merits of Jesus Christ, through the beauty of his person and through the perfection of his life and his death. That is the basis of our appeal to God and the basis of our access to his holiness. We don't even put our trust in our own faith. Not if we understand the biblical teaching of faith right. No. Through faith, we put our trust in the quality of Jesus as we acknowledge that the quality of our faith is very broken and imperfect. But we trust that that's what God gives us to put our trust in his perfect gift of Jesus. Jesus clears the way for a holy God to unite us to himself. Now, now David didn't know all that, right? David's an Old Testament figure. But he did know through the sacrificial system and through the law, something in the faint outlines of Messiah to come who would take away sin and remove every barrier between people and God. We now, on the New Testament side, see all the rich details of just who this Messiah is, the son of David, Jesus Christ, and all that he has done in his life and in his death on the cross outside of Jerusalem to open the way for us. That is to say, David trusted Jesus to come. We now trust Jesus who has come. But this holy strength that is made ours through the blood of Christ, it has a holy character to it. It is, it is truly an otherworldly kind of strength, and it makes us do otherworldly kinds of things. Jesus talks in the Beatitudes about rejoicing when you're persecuted. It gives us what Paul calls a peace that surpasses understanding. It fixes our hope on things beyond this life. It's the strength that Paul and Silas had when they were imprisoned in Philippi, and in Acts 16 we hear that they're singing. This holy strength works in us an otherworldly, holy response to the things that threaten us. And that's one of the ways that God brings great glory to himself. It's a gift of divine strength, and it's a blood-bought, grace-given, otherworldly, holy strength. And thirdly, I kept trying to think of a better adjective for it, but I couldn't find it, so I'll just put it this way. It's divine, it's holy, and it's a scriptural strength. A scriptural strength. Martin Luther was fond of saying that the Holy Spirit comes riding into our hearts in the chariot of God's word. Now David has been strengthened before. Back in chapter 23, he's being pursued by Saul. He's trembling. He's scared. And his dear friend Jonathan, who happens to be Saul's son, strengthens him, we read in chapter 23. And he strengthens David by reminding him of the promise that had been made to David when he was anointed by Samuel that he would be Israel's next king. It's a divine, scriptural promise. And we can only suppose that here when David and Ziklag, his own men, talking of stoning him, is strengthening himself, he's strengthening himself in the scriptures. Maybe he's remembering that, that promise. Maybe he's thinking back to Numbers chapter 12 and that time when Miriam and Aaron turned on Moses. His, his, his lieutenants turned on him. But David, uh, Moses appealed to the Lord and the Lord preserved him. Maybe, maybe he's written Psalm 23 by now. And in this moment, David is recalling that the Lord is his shepherd. 
When the bottom falls out and you, you need strength from above, the Scriptures tell us that you need the Word of God opened. And you need some Word of God on your heart. Because the strength of the Holy Spirit will come riding to you in the chariot of God's Word. If you're going through a tough time right now, or those of you who've been brought through a really difficult season, did you have or do you now have a passage that is on your heart? And it's that way that this divine, holy, scriptural strength, a gift from God, comes into your bones. So the this, this strength from below, it's, it's full of, strength from below is full of human resources, human ways, human words. But strength from above is divine in its origin, it's holy in its manner, and it's scriptural in the pathway that it takes to enter our own lives. Those are its qualities. What then are the ways that we receive it? What then are the postures that God looks for when he gives in his grace this strength? Three. First, God gives strength to the humble, not to the proud. Humility is that awareness of our smallness before God's greatness. It's something that Adam would have had even before the fall. It's something that will mark us as being perfect about us when we're glorified in heaven. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The nature of pride is that it it thinks much on the self either in, in, a, in a proudful, arrogant way, thinking of how great you are, or in a kind of obsessive, self-pitying way, a poor me, poor me, poor me kind of way. Both of those are expressions of the same root pride. And humility is the opposite. C.S. Lewis says, humility isn't thinking less about yourself, but thinking about yourself less. Humility thinks instead much about God, much about the genuine needs of others. And the humble heart is open wide to receive divine strength. Second, God gives strength to the contrite, not the critical. If humility is an awareness of our smallness, contrition is awareness of our sin and our guilt. The woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair knew contrition. And she also knew she was washing the feet of grace. That Jesus was not pushing her away because of her sin and guilt but welcoming her to come near and bask in his forgiveness. In David's most famous confession of sin, Psalm 51, he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is so counterintuitive. But the worse things get for us in our lives, the more we need to ask God to search our hearts and to show us depths and angles of our sin that, we have not, that we've been taking lightly or overlooking or not seeking His mercy for. We're prone to criticize others and especially to criticize those over us. But God gives the strength, His strength to those who instead pursue contrition. Third, God gives strength to the humble, not to the proud, to the contrite, not to the critical, and to those hoping in his word, not to those who are cynical, 
about the future. By, by hopeful, I don't mean optimistic, kind of it's always sunshine no matter what, just naturally buoyant. Such people can be annoyingly so. Um, I mean those who are hopeful despite all that is very clear to them is wrong and is sinful and is broken around them and inside them. They are realists about the world, realists about themselves, but they are ruthless realists about God's capacity to keep his promises as well. On October 15, 1864, the, the Scottish pastor Andrew Bonner and his midday reading of God's word was in Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And he was meditating on Nahum 1.7. And shortly thereafter, that afternoon, his wife unexpectedly died. And he writes in his journal, Little did I think how I would need that passage half an hour after meditating on it. And in his journal, in the years that followed, every time it was October the 15th, he marked it with Nahum 1-7. He wasn't being just a buoyant optimist. He was grieving the loss of someone dear to him while holding fast to his hope in God's word. When we slide into cynicism, which can be kind of a protective way of just, if I, if I doubt that anything good could come from this in, this in the future, then I won't be disappointed if nothing does. When we slide into cynicism, it invariably weakens us. The countenance of the cynic is always downcast, always a frown. But if we hope in God's word, despite everything else that we honestly assess and realistically know to be true about the hardship that we face, we open our hearts to receive the, the inpouring of God's strength. These three ways of receiving God's strength, I take them straight from Isaiah 66 too, where the Lord says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite and who trembles, at my word. So the strength God gives to David and still gives to us is divine, it's holy, it's scriptural, and he gives it to the humble, the contrite, and those who hope in his word, all of those deeply, deeply counterintuitive. And next week, Lord willing, we'll see what happens to David after he receives his strength from above. Quite a story unrolls, unfolds. But today, I just want to close with this question. Is the future that you are moving toward right now uh, is it a future that's going to be made of strength from below? A future will be built of all the moves and counter moves and maneuvers and new information and new perspective that you gained in the midst of this so that on the other end of it, you can say, here's like, let me tell you how I made it through that. I've got five things to, to emphasize. Or is the future that you're moving toward right now a future that would be made of strength from above? a future of the need that God met you in and the way that he moved to do things that were beyond your expectation and far beyond your capacity. And on the other end of it, all you can say is glory be to God. Glory be to God. 
I was a pastor for 10 years until four years ago. And it's funny when you're not a pastor until you're 29 years old and then you become a pastor for 10 years and then you're not a pastor again for four years. Just these subtle differences of how people relate to you. You feel them very keenly. So when I became a pastor, it changed how people talked to me if they were a stranger that I met at a banquet table or on an airplane. Um, and this is the way most of the conversations would go. You know, what do you do? Oh, I'm an, I'm an engineer. I'm a you know, mom. I'm a teacher. I'm a doctor. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, that's really great. You know, the church I go to, we've been, we just started this new ministry a couple of years ago. It's a really wonderful ministry. We, we cook this. We serve that. We do that. My wife and I, we're there every Wednesday. We take our kids and it's just been one of those meaningful things that we do. And, and let me just they keep telling you all about it. And the first couple of times that happened, I didn't think much of it. But when it became like the fourth, fifth, sixth time where it became almost an expectation. If I'm sitting next to a church-going person, they're going to flash their spiritual credentials. It, it produced in me a little bit of like a, a social fantasy. That one day I might sit next to someone on a plane or at a banquet table. And they'd say, what do you do? I'm a pastor. And they would just kind of lean back, take a deep breath, stare off in the distance and say, oh, I'm just so thankful for Jesus. I can't imagine what life would be like without him. Clemson Press, I don't know what God has in store for you this week and the weeks and the months ahead, but I can tell you he wants it to take you there. Where you look back and you say, having sought strength from above, not strength from below. <laughs> We're just so thankful for Jesus. We can't imagine where we'd be without him. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks that you did not leave David on his own. Your fatherly heart was moved toward him, and you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever and your heart is moved toward us. So we pray that you would give us what we cannot produce on our own, that you'd give us by your Spirit the gift of a humble heart and a contrite heart and a heart that hopes in your Word, and that you'd give us a future that on the other end produces in us such thanksgiving and praise that everything is about your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.